As a boy, Daryl Fields grew up in a large family with seven siblings and step-siblings in Portsmouth, Virginia. Like his older brothers, he loved to play football. And at six foot five and 235 pounds, he was good too. An old photo, yellow and frayed, shows Daryl standing proudly in his jersey with his helmet tucked under one arm. But football would soon be his downfall. He was a star athlete in high school and goes to a local college to play football and injures himself and gets addicted to painkillers and couldn't shake himself off the addiction. That's Tim Eberly, an investigative reporter with the Virginian Pilot. Tim says Daryl went on to drop out of school. After the knee surgery and the painkillers, he eventually weaned himself off the pills. Working in a shipyard, he gave football another try and started to play for some local semi-pro teams. But then he injured the same knee. The doctor's solution? More painkillers. His knees hurt and he starts popping the painkillers and says he immediately got addicted again. And this time, once the pills ran out, he goes to uh, cocaine. And that was kind of his downfall for, you know, his slippery slope to robbery. Daryl lost his wife, lost his job, and was quickly caught during his robbing spree. He was sentenced to more than 80 years in prison. So far, he served about 25 years, and subtracting time for good behavior has 20 more to go. By the time he gets out, he'll be 75 years old. Most of us will never spend time in prison, but at the same time, something about Daryl's story felt relatable to Tim. So many people getting hooked on drugs, even hard, illicit drugs via painkillers, the prescribed stuff. Someone who comes from a stable family and doesn't have sort of those stereotypical beginnings that many people ascribe to a convicted armed robber. His story resonated with me. Daryl was just one of about 260 inmates who were ineligible for parole because of a 1982 Virginia law. The three strikes law resulted in some Virginia inmates serving more time than many murderers, even though most hadn't harmed anyone in their crimes and had never been in prison before. By removing someone's parole eligibility, it turns that nine or 12 year sentence into a 90 year sentence, an 80 year sentence. So it, it essentially becomes a life sentence, so to speak. For more than a decade, the Virginia Three Strikes Law drastically changed the course of convicts' lives. But thanks to Tim's three-month investigation, inmates like Daryl may now get to walk free. I'm Tessa Weinberg, and you're listening to the IRE Radio Podcast. In late July, Tim had just wrapped up a story and was scouting out his next investigation. One of the things that we're, we were sort of tossing around was to scrutinize the parole board, the state parole board. Much of the business that they do is behind closed doors. They're actually exempt from the FOIA law, so they have to turn over nothing in terms of public records. And so it seemed like fertile ground for me to sort of peel back some layers and see if there were any viable investigative stories there. Tim began to reach out to nonprofits and attorneys, people who often cross paths with the parole board. One source mentioned the three strikes law and the inmates affected. It immediately caught Tim's attention. Implemented in 1982, 
The three strikes law was meant to reduce recidivism for offenders who commit armed robbery, rape, or murder. The concept is pretty simple. Three strikes and you're out. Or, in prison terms, you're in for good. After three separate offenses, an offender would lose eligibility for parole. At the time, sentences in Virginia were very long for people who would get sentenced for these types of crimes, but they would basically become eligible for parole fairly soon after serving just a fraction of that sentence. And so you might get sentenced to 120 years for a few robberies, but only serve nine or 12. So removing someone's parole eligibility was a significant penalty. Tim wanted to talk to the inmates, known as three strikers, who had lived much of their lives in prison because of this law. But they weren't easy to find. The Virginia Department of Corrections couldn't tell Tim exactly how many three strikers there were, let alone who they were. So Tim had to find them on his own. That was a challenging process because the DUC refused to identify who the three strikers were. And so we couldn't just get a list and then go to them and confirm it. Tim started by asking lawyers and advocates for the names of any three strikers they knew. Once he got a handful, he began to reach out. Fairly recently, the state of Virginia now allows people to email inmates. Still in some other state, you have to literally write a letter to an inmate and wait for it to get to them in prison after it's reviewed and opened by corrections officers. It's a prolonged process. After Tim set up an email account with the system, he arranged phone interviews with the inmates he reached. Most of them were eager to talk. Well, the overwhelming reaction was that most of them were chomping at the bit to do interviews. Because imagine these guys have spent, most of them have spent like, 25 to 30 years in prison. And in their eyes, they have viewed this law and their situation as an injustice because they've seen these people who have committed murders come into prison and then leave, and they're still there. And they know that they did commit at least three robberies, and those are serious crimes. But if they didn't hurt anyone and they had never been to prison before, and they went from a first offender to three striker in one fell swoop, that's a hard pill for these guys to swallow. And over the decades, there hadn't been many people advocating for three strikers. In a way, they had been forgotten. Once I started interviewing a couple of them, everyone I talked to, I said, do you know other guys in there who are three strikers? Give me all their names that you can get. And they started giving me names in droves. And that's kind of how our source tree for tracking down three strikers grew. While some inmates had a long list of names they could pass on, Tim found that others kept more to themselves. Some guys, it seems like, really stick to themselves in prison. And a couple of guys would be like, you know, I don't really know anybody. The guys that I associate with, we don't really discuss our criminal pasts, essentially. And then other guys really did and would give me a list of like six, eight, ten names. Many of the three strikers were concentrated in a few prisons, usually the geriatric or mid-to-high security ones. So he started hearing the same names over and over. They were like, yeah, you know, you should talk to John Doe, and other guys tell me also to talk to John Doe. So I was like, yeah, I've already, I've already talked to John Doe. He's on my list. So that was kind of one of the funny things that came across, the duplicate names. Once he made contact with the three striker, Tim's next step was to verify their story. We had to basically ask these three strikers, send us all your paperwork, whatever you've got from the time you were convicted and the time since you've been in prison where you were classified as a three striker. Send, send me everything that you've got. Some inmates had tons of records, down to the court transcripts, while others simply lost track of their documentation over time or between moving prisons. 
so we had to go to courthouses and dig up decades, you know, three-decade-old court cases. Uh, we had to track down attorneys that represented them at the time and ask them for whatever paperwork they had. So we had to basically cobble together the documents from a variety of sources to verify not only that they were three strikers, but that the details that they were telling us about their court case and their crimes were true. He ended up talking to 41 three-strikers for the story. To keep all his notes organized, Tim kept a detailed spreadsheet that helped inform his checklist of things to do. At the outset, Tim thought the most important aspect of the inmates' crimes was the time frame. He zeroed in on how many days or weeks had passed between an inmate's first robbery and then their second and third. But about a month into his reporting, a more significant theme began to emerge. A number of these guys told me that when they got to prison, they didn't find out that they were classified as a three-striker for 10 years, 12 years, 20 years into their sentence. And the first one or two guys that told me that, out of the first 20 I interviewed, I was like, oh, that's, that's bizarre. I need to look into that. As Tim interviewed more three-strikers, he found that for many, the delay was the norm. In other words, they get into prison, they know what their sentence is, their lawyer has told them, hey... Okay, so you have a 60-year sentence, but you're going to be up for parole after 10 or 12 years. You're likely going to get out after this amount of time based upon my practical knowledge of the prison system. And then some letter lands in their mailbox, and it's a letter from the DUC saying, we've just classified you as parole ineligible. And they realize that their prison term just got a heck of a lot longer. It was interesting to find out that it was sort of a two-part penalty process for these guys. Some inmates weren't told until 20 years into their sentences that they wouldn't be eligible for parole. One inmate described it as double jeopardy, like getting punished twice for the same crime. And when Tim asked about the gap in time so many three strikers had experienced, the Department of Corrections wouldn't talk. to tell a complete story, Tim wanted to understand the history of the three strikes law and why it was established in the first place. But silence from agencies and officials became a constant barrier. Tim had decided to look into this issue because of its secrecy. Still, he was surprised by the Department of Corrections' unwillingness to do interviews for the story. Because we're dealing with taxpayer money here, and this is a public agency, I was surprised that they did not offer up someone in their agency to do interviews with. And I started with the lady who runs the division that classifies these guys as three strikers, and I went up the chain all the way up to the director of the DOC asking for interviews with all of them, and they they said no for everybody. Since no one would agree to an interview, Tim had to settle for the next best thing, emailing his questions. They would only answer certain questions by email. You know, there was plenty of others that they either gave non-answers to or just flat out ignored. The DOC's method slowed Tim down, but they didn't stop him from digging. So I just kind of made sure that I was always asking questions of the DOC because I knew what the pace of the response was. And so if I knew that it was going to take them several days to a week to answer a question, I would make sure that I constantly had questions in the system so I could constantly have that flow of information as slow as it may be coming back my way while I was doing other stuff on the story. The parole board, which isn't subject to FOIA laws, proved even more difficult. 
when I asked their chairwoman for information, because they don't have to turn over FOIA stuff, I would just say, all right, well, if you don't have the FOIA stuff, I'm asking you for this. Will you turn this over? Will you turn this data over? Will you turn these records over? And she would either not answer, say no, say she didn't have it, didn't know it, had already asked it, and didn't have the information. So I got very little out of the parole board for the story. Tim also had to track down how the three strikes law had changed and been amended over the years. A main tenet of the 1982 law was that it applied to people who accumulated three separate convictions for armed robbery, rape, or murder. However, when lawmakers revamped the law in 1994, the new law stated that convicts could only be classified as three strikers if their convictions were separated by time at liberty, which essentially means time spent outside of prison. The new at-liberty stipulation meant that most of the couple hundred inmates that had been classified as three strikers under the 1982 version of the law would have avoided the designation because their crimes had been committed in a condensed spree rather than in three separate incidents. Even though the three strikes movement was sort of rooted in combating recidivism and the revolving door of prison, this law did not require inmates to be in and out of prison between their offenses. So a lot of the inmates that we interviewed committed their crimes in a single spree, a matter of a week, a few weeks, a couple months. And the three robberies that they committed during that stretch, or at least three of them, amounted to their three strikes. And that is what led to them being parole ineligible. And once these inmates were labeled as three strikers, they had no way to dispute the designation. It wasn't until 1993 when the law was amended, that inmates had an opportunity for recourse. Enter Marion Van Landingham. In the early 90s, Van Landingham was a state legislator who wanted to propose changes to rework the three strikes law. But she wasn't able to, she didn't have the support to do what she wanted to do with the law, but she was able to add a little sentence in there, a little provision that essentially gave the parole board the power to reverse the DUC's decision. It gave them essentially the deciding vote, the oversight over who was a three-striker or not. Three-strikers could now file appeals with the parole board, and they were hopeful it might lead to a way out. However, very few three-strikers have ever been released under the amendment. One known case was Sue Kennan, an affluent white woman who robbed four businesses in a three-week stretch in 1987. So she only served 14 years before she got released and had her case overturned. So all these other men who are labeled three strikers thought, okay, my case lines up really well with hers. Now that the the parole board has let her go, I'm definitely going to get out. And they didn't. They filed appeals and they got rejected. That was one of the things that really kind of created a racial undertone to some of these guys, to their perception of the three strikes situation, because most of the guys I interviewed are black men from impoverished backgrounds. Officials might have been tight-lipped about the law, but documents Tim was able to get from attorneys spoke volumes. An inmate could avoid the three-striker designation if their three offenses were found to be part of a common act, scheme, or transaction. But Tim found that the parole board's interpretation of a common scheme allowed few inmates to gain freedom using that avenue. He obtained a 2010 letter in which the then parole board chairwoman laid out how the body was interpreting the common scheme definition 
much more narrowly than their written policy. An offender's three robberies, she wrote, had to involve the same victim, occur during the same incident, or take place within 48 hours. So that little nugget in that letter to an attorney for one guy's case proved to be quite valuable because it shed light on this secretive body's interpretation of this incredibly controversial law. And so just a a needle in a haystack that proved to be really valuable as time wore on. To make matters worse, there were also different interpretations of the law over the years when it came to whether a person needed to have a weapon during a robbery or simply imply they had a weapon for their crime to be subject to the three strikes law. Toward the end of Tim's reporting, he made a call to the man who had started it all, Ralph Axel Jr., the former Virginia state delegate who had proposed the original legislation that resulted in the 1982 law. It was a call that I had been waiting to make. I didn't make it for a while because I wanted to make sure that I really knew what the story was going to be, that it had come into focus before I did it. Because sometimes you only get one shot, you know, one bite of the apple. Because the original version of the Three Strikes Law was written in such an ambiguous way, Tim wanted to hear from the bill's sponsor about whether he intended an inmate's three offenses to be separated by time out of prison. But when Tim reached Axel by phone, he said he couldn't remember what had prompted him to submit the legislation in the first place. I'm not real sure I was that finite in my thinking, he said. After three months of work that consisted of interviews with nearly four dozen three-strikers and hours spent sifting through records, it was time to publish. Coming into the story, Tim had wanted to speak to as many three-strikers as possible. If the story got held for a week or two, for whatever reason, I would have kept going and done more interviews. In fact, in the days before the story ran, people were contacting me like, hey, I'm sorry, my prison was on lockdown, I'm sorry I didn't get your emails, or I didn't have any money on my email account, so I couldn't respond to your email, but I just got it, do you still want to do an interview? Once the story was published, Tim began to hear from lawmakers who said they planned to submit legislation to revise the law. Tim made that the focus of a follow-up story and published it online a few days later. That same day, Tim received a text message that would drastically alter the lead of the story before it went to print. And once that story posted online, the state parole board chairwoman reached out to me and said, I have some information that I want to give you. Is it too late to get it in the story? The follow-up piece wasn't scheduled to go to print until Sunday, so Tim met with the chairwoman Saturday afternoon at a coffee shop. She said, here's what I have for you. And she basically said that they were going to be interpreting the law differently, that the parole board was unanimous in how they were going to start interpreting the law, which, in effect, would, based upon our knowledge of these inmates and our reporting, would result in almost all of these guys getting their eligibility restored, becoming pro-eligible again, and probably, more than likely because of the amount of time they spend in prison, a good number of them getting released from prison. After his interview with the chairwoman, Tim rushed back to the office to rewrite the story with the news. The board made two major changes. The first, requiring that a convict's three separate offenses had to be at liberty. And the second, that for robberies to count as three strikes offenses, inmates had to have been convicted of a weapons possession charge. Nearly all of the 41 three-strikers Tim had talked to for the story 
had committed their three offenses in a brief period of time. And with the parole board's new interpretation, they would have a chance to become eligible for parole again. On that sample size of the 260 that are in prison, if the sample size is a reflection of that number, then the vast majority of these guys would likely be deemed parole eligible once they appeal. So it would obviously affect a lot of people. Once the parole board announced they were going to switch their interpretation of the law, I had phone calls where guys were really emotional, some really wonderful emails from them and calls from relatives where they were just so thankful and appreciative. And just days after the parole board's decision, the first three-striker was released. 69-year-old Hanif Rashid, who had served 27 years in prison, was granted freedom. Hanif said he was looking forward to a good meal, buying some clothes, and visiting his oldest brother. The conversation with Hanif was interesting because he was still in a little bit of almost like disbelief himself. While he was released on geriatric parole, Hanif's release signaled the chance that more three-strikers would soon see freedom. He is the first of the three-striker batch, folks that we interviewed, who was granted parole. And so now we're kind of on, you know, sort of inmate watch to see who gets their eligibility restored, who gets released, how many. If this is going to open sort of the floodgates for a lot of these guys to get out. And since then, even more have. Tim knows of at least six three-strikers who have been granted release by the parole board and at least three have had their parole eligibility restored. And in January, former Virginia Governor Terry McAuliffe pardoned six inmates, and one of them was a three-striker who had been interviewed for Tim's initial investigation. For other inmates, like Daryl Fields, the football player we mentioned at the beginning of this episode, it's a waiting game. There's plenty of times you do stories where I'll spend as much time as this on an article, and there is no impact. There is no after-effect. So it certainly shows you the power of journalism when all the stars align. I definitely have the experience of doing stories like this where, you know, it's like a tree falls in a forest. (laughs) And for one reason or another, people don't hear it. So in this case, in the very least, it's good that it was heard. And readers have noticed the story's impact, too. Some went as far as sending in letters to the editor to express their thanks. One reader wrote that Tim should be proud that his reporting caused the parole board to take a closer look. Another said, this is why we will always need newspapers and dedicated investigative reporting. And yet another wrote, if it is true that pilot reporter Tim Eberle's stories on the state parole board's interpretation of the three strikes law is responsible for its demise, then all of the money I have paid in more than 40 years for my subscription to the pilot has been worth it. Great job, Mr. Eberly. Thanks for listening. Take a look at our episode notes for links to the pilot's investigation and resources for reporting on prisons. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play, or wherever else you get your podcasts. 
and you can spend hours listening to the stories behind some of the best investigative reporting in the country at ire.org podcast. The IRE Radio Podcast is recorded in the studios of KBIA. Blake Nelson draws our art for each episode. Sarah Hutchins is our editor. From Columbia, Missouri, I'm Tessa Weinberg. Radio. Podcast. Podcast. You might want to do that already. Okay. Podcast. Podcast.